0: Well, I don't have, uh, I don't have PowerPoint or anything because, well, I hate it. So, uh, I hope that's not going to be too difficult just to hear me talk. But, uh, th- some of you pro- actually, most of you probably know this, but some of you may be interested to know that this lecture series actually goes back to the very beginning of the last Alliance. And I can actually still remember Megan, Mitch, and probably Heather and I sitting in the office and hub coming up with different activities that we could do and sort of saying, we would, because it's a university club, I think we want some kind of academic component to it. And I don't remember who actually came up with the idea of a lecture series, but that's when it started. And uh, I think the first one, Mitch, the first one was Corey Olson probably, right?
1: Yeah, we, our- uh, we just shot our shot. Right. Oh, Corey Olson. <laughs> right, that's right, yeah. <laughs>
0: So I mean, it's pretty important. Like, it's pretty cool that it goes all the way back. We've had a lot of different activities kind of sort of come and go with uh, The Last Alliance, but this is one that has remained. Uh, And I mean, we've had a pretty high caliber of names and academics who have spoken, uh, which is pretty impressive. I think, you know, the envy of any formal Tolkien conference, I think, if you think of all the people who've come through Of course, in all that time, it never crossed my mind that I would be giving one, (laughs) so I have to admit that I I feel a bit like Bilbo, you know, in the Hall of Fire, having my songs sung just to please me, but knowing that they don't really, uh, they're not really good enough for Rivendell, (laughs) but so I thank you, I mean, it's a friendly audience. Uh, I am an academic, but Tolkien's not really my area, and sadly, since I've left Edmonton, I haven't spent as much time in Tolkien as I wish I could have so and of course I know this group and I know that uh, most of you know more about Tolkien than I do so I'm, I'm very happy to uh, to talk to you and I'm, but I'm also hoping that we're going to get some discussion and some questions and probably some corrections uh, which is all uh, just fine. So I thought that I would offer some reflections on a topic that's actually been on the back of my mind for a number of years now. In fact, I can tell you the exact date that I started thinking about it. It was April 4th, 2014. And I know this because I actually still have the note on my phone that I wrote it down when I thought, oh, this might be something I can think about. And it was important enough that, I, I mean, it's not the same phone. So I transferred the note to my new phone. So it's sort of been kind of, you know, on the back of my mind. And of course, looking at the date, April 4th, I can only surmise that the idea must have sprung from something I heard on or around the end of semester term party, which is of course completely unsurprising to me since never in my life have I been in the presence of such amazing creative energy as on those evenings in Rivendell when we shared our thoughts and reflections on Tolkien. So, what I want to speak to you about this morning, uh, this evening for you, I want to speak to you about Feanor and Earendo, those two larger-than-life characters who stand as narrative bookends around the main drama of the Quintus Silmarillion. As bookends, they are separated first by time, by my estimate around 3,300 years, I'm sure someone's already scrambling to figure out that, if that's right. But also space, Fanor was born half a continent and an ocean away from Earendo's birthplace. Although, of course, Feanor died at the mouth of the Sirion, only about 75 kilometers from the valley of Tumladin, which would be the future site of Gondolin. Yet what truly separates them are the countless years of grief that make up the narrative of the Quenta Silmarillion a narrative in which despite the difference between them, they are both decisive. The one by placing the world in terrible jeopardy and the other in providing hope beyond despair. Upon first glance, these two characters couldn't be more different. Yet there are a number of interesting parallels between them that I think are worth our attention. And I suggest that it's these very parallels, these similarities, that highlight the central difference between them. And so consider first the narrative description of their birth. And as far as I can tell, and someone can check, these are the only characters in the Silmarillion about whom we are given a detailed description of their birth. And this is one of the things that started me thinking about comparing them. And let me just mention here kind of briefly that my main reference, of course, is the 1977 edition of the Silmarillion. And I use this for the sake of simplicity and convenience. I'm aware, of course, that that edition is just a snapshot of an endlessly unfinished text. And those who are interested might look through the history of Middle-earth where you might see some other differences or comparisons and variations in these uh, characters' uh, narratives. But let me let me get on to the births um i don't know if you have if you want to read along It's if, if you have a copy of your silmarillion uh you're welcome to do that i think uh i think most of the page numbers are the same in well I, I don't know anyway uh so fanner's birth it's first fanner's birth uh it's on page uh 200 and oh sorry it's on page 63 in uh my sort of copy of the silmarillion that looks looks kind of like this is my oh my it's ooh look at how it fades out there ooh it's the magic of Rivendell so this is page uh page 63 in my version of the Silmarillion where we read in that time was born in Eldamar in the house of the king in Tyrion upon the crown of Tuna the eldest of the sons of Finwë and the most beloved Finway was his name but by his mother, he was called Feanor, Spirit of Fire. And thus he is remembered in all the tales of the Noldor. Now I skip a bit. The love of Finwë and Muriel was great and glad for it began in the blessed realm in the days of bliss. But in the bearing of her son, Muriel was consumed in spirit and body. And after his birth, she yearned for release from the labor of living. And when she had named him, she said to Finwë, never again shall I bear a child, for strength that would have nourished the life of many has gone forth into fanor And then on to Eorendo and his birth story, which in my Silmarillion, Silmarillion is on page 241, and uh, there we read, in the spring of the year after was born in Gondolin Earendo, half-elven, the son of Tur and Idril Celebrindal, And that was 500 years and three since the coming of the Noldor to Middle-earth. Of surpassing beauty was Earendo, for a light was in his face as the light of heaven. And he had the beauty and the wisdom of the Eldar and the strength and hardihood of the men of old. And the sea spoke ever in his heart, even as with Tur, his father. Now, while Aorendo has a longer history in Tolkien's thought and first appeared in some poems he wrote in 1914 and 1915, narratively speaking, Fanor is a much more complex and developed character than Aorendo. And this can already be seen, I think, in their birth stories. The tone of the Aorendo birth narrative is already more hopeful than that of Fanor, simply because Arendel is born in the spring. And for Tolkien, spring is the season of hope. So Smaug and the Hobbit, as you know, and Sauron and the Lord of the Rings, are both defeated in the spring. The birth of Arendel in the spring is meant to signify a turn in the narrative towards hope, even if the fulfillment of that hope is delayed, as it is in the story of the fall of Gondolin. In addition to being born in the spring, Arundel is described in terms that are meant to emphasize his goodness and value. He has beauty, wisdom, strength, and hardihood, or fortitude, which I think would be the classical name of that virtue. And these are all positive virtues in the Western philosophical tradition that Tolkien inherited. Perhaps more significantly is the description that the light of heaven was in his face, Thus implying that Eorendo has the favor of the gods, the Valar in the Silmarillion. This divine favor is strengthened in the language of the sea speaking in his heart. This cryptic phrase is meant to invoke the Valar Ulmo. And so linking Eorendo to the Valar, who arguably more than all the others, is deeply concerned with the fates of the peoples of Middle-earth. So, Eorendo is presented in the narrative as one who is blessed by the gods and full of virtue. That is, one who has, from the very beginning, been given much in order that he may accomplish much. In contrast, in his birth narrative, Theanor has been given little. There is no mention of virtue no beauty wisdom strength or hardihood. in the name Kurofinwe we get a glimpse of what he is to become kuru meaning skill but he has no light of heaven in his face only an ominous spirit of fire ominous because it's the name given to him by his mother muriel against the name Kurofinwe. spirit of fire or feanor is the name he's to be remembered by thus suggesting here at the very beginning that it's the spirit of fire in him that will dominate his actions rather than his skill. There is, however, one gift that Feanor receives in his birth narrative, a gift that I think makes his story all the more tragic, a gift that even Eorendo, with all of his divine favor and blessedness, does not receive, or at least it's not mentioned in his birth narrative. Feanor is the most beloved of the sons of Finway. Feanor is loved. It's a love that springs from the love between his parents, the love that is rooted in the blessed realm itself. And so I think we could say it's a kind of divine love, but a divine love that's not experienced directly as Earendel seems to have a kind of direct connection with Ulmo, but a divine love that comes through Muriel and Finway. The point here that I'm trying to suggest is that the birth of both characters is given special attention in the narrative. And that attention connects them to each other, while at the same time emphasizes the difference between them. So in addition to that, to the sort of the, but they both have these interesting birth narratives, a second parallel, or perhaps a second connection, is that both Fanor and Eorendo have the blood of Finwë coursing through their veins. Finwë, as you all probably know, was one of the three elves who first came to Valinor and who then goes back to bring their respective peoples on the long journey across Valerian and into the Blessed Realm. Finwë is the king of the Noldor, a name meaning wisdom, and it is that wisdom that Eärendil inherited, as we saw in his birth narrative. Interestingly, Finwë is also the first to take a second wife after the death of his first, Muriel. And he does this against the wishes of Thanor. And as a result, there's strife between Thanor, the son of Finwë and Muriel, and Finarfin and Fingolfin, the sons of Finwë and Indus, from whom eventually we get Eärendil. And the strife within the house of Finwë leads to the first kinslaying. And so while the valor hold Thanor to be responsible for his actions, Matthew Dickerson, who I think gave a lecture for us once, suggests that neither Finwë nor Muriel are wholly blameless. Eärendil's descent from Finwë is invoked by Ulmo when Eärendil arrives in Valinor as the reason why his life should be spared for stepping onto the dying land. So in Eärendil's narrative, we're reminded of that connection with Finwë as a way, I think, of reminding us also of Fanor. A third parallel. Is that both Feanor and Eärendil reaped the rewards that came from having powerful benefactors. Feanor was born in Valinor and so had access to the wisdom and knowledge of the Valar. He married Nerdanel, daughter of the great smith Matan, who among the Noldor was most dear to Aulë. And while there's no question that Feanor was unique in mind and skill all of his own, he also benefited greatly from his relationship to the Valar. Similarly, Eorindel was born in Gondolin, the great city of Turgon that was built both as a memorial and an exemplar of Tirion of Tuna in Amman. Eorindel was only seven years old when the Balrogs of Morgoth descended upon the city, but he surely learned much from the elves of Gondolin in those short years. His true benefactor was Cirdan, who taught him shipbuilding and seafaring. And thus, while fanor was master of earth and gems and jewels and recipient of the wisdom of Aule, Arendel studied under Círdan and learned of the sea and ships and so was cared for by Ulmo. And we also ought not miss the bitter irony that Círdan is of the same people, the Teleri, who were slaughtered by Fanor, and whose ships were burned in the kinslang. It is now a Teleri ship, that will bear Eärendil into the West. And then finally, both Fanor and Eärendil are exiles. Fanor's exile is self-imposed. That is, as Manwë says, but thou, Fanor Finwë's son, by thine oath are exiled. His unwillingness to give up the Silmarils leads him to make that terrible oath that drives him and then his sons for the entire narrative. Feanor, his sons, and all who join them are banned from Valinor. And this is much more than just a geographical exile. It's also a kind of spiritual one. For as Manwe declares, no aid will the Valar lend you in this quest, but neither will they hinder you. Feanor and his sons and those that join him are now permanently and irrevocably cut off from Valinor and from the Valar. They are on their own. And from this moment, exile becomes a mark of their identity, as can be seen with Gildor in the Fellowship, who describes his people as exiles in Middle-earth. With the destruction of Gondolin, Eärendil also becomes an exile. He, along with the survivors of the destruction of Gondolin, eventually joined the remnants of the people of Doriath, the mouths of the Syrian. This group is referred to as exiles by the narrator when the sons of Feanor attack them in the final kinslang. Arendel's exile is forced upon him, unlike that of Feanor, but the loss of Gondolin must surely be as traumatic for Arendel as the loss of Tyrion was for Feanor. Yet, of course, the exiles of Gondolin and Doriath are never completely abandoned, for Ulmo continues to plead to the Valar on their behalf. And still, as important as this exile is for the progression of the narrative, Eärendil's true exile, the exile that parallels and yet surpasses the exile of Feanor, is yet to come. So there are sort of four kind of parallels, kind of trajectories that I saw between Feanor and Eärendil, kind of parallel lives in a way. But the question is, what are we to make of them? And while it can't, it cannot be said that these comparisons are exact, I did find it striking that these two central characters of the Silmarillion, one at the beginning, one at the end, have these sort of parallel lives. And yet the very events of their lives that they have in common are the same, are at the same time the very events that make them so different. And so the tragedy of the life of Fayanor is that already in the very moment of his birth, Fayanor is one who takes. The spirit of fire consumes the spirit and body of Muriel, so much so that she becomes weary of life and confesses that her strength, which was enough for the care and nourishment of many, has been completely consumed by Fayanor. Fayanor takes. And it's this characteristic that defines him and actually shapes the entire narrative arc of the Silmarillion. In his letter to Milton Waldman, Tolkien writes that the fall of the elves comes about through the possessive attitude of Feanor and his seven sons. This possessive attitude reached its zenith in Feanor's love for the Silmarils. We read that he began to love the Silmarils with a greedy love and grudged the sight of them to all save his father and his seven sons. He seldom remembered now that the light within them was not his own." This greedy love is a main theme in many of Tolkien's works and serves as a driving force for evil in the mythology. In The Hobbit, it's dragon sickness. In The Lord of the Rings, it's the lust for the ring. In fa- in the Silmarillion, it's Fanor's greedy love for the Silmarils that serves as the main crisis that drives the narrative forward. And we know the decisive moment. Melkor and Ungoliant have just destroyed the trees. The Valar and the Nolder have gathered about the Ring of Doom. Yvonne speaks of the loss of the trees and how the creation of the trees is a work that cannot be repeated. The light of the trees resides now only in the Silmarils. And then she says this, Yovana, yet had I but a little of that light, a, just a little, I could recall life to the trees ere their roots decay, then our hurt should be healed and the malice of Melkor be confounded. So look at what is at stake. With just a little bit of the light, our hurt can be healed and Melkor confounded. The trees might be restored. Melkor would never be able to accomplish their destruction a second time. And so then Manwë speaks and says, Hearest thou, Feanor, son of Finwë, the words of Yvanna, wilt thou grant what she would ask? This is the moment. And it falls upon Feanor. And it's here where Feanor has the chance to give up the Silmarils, to renounce his greed and possessiveness. An Alley here makes sure that everyone knows how difficult it is. It's not easy. It has to be difficult because the fate of the world is dependent upon it. This same choice is then repeated throughout Tolkien's mythology. And I'm sure we can all think of examples of it. In the end, Fanner makes his choice and he chooses not to give up the Silmarils. Of course, we know that that's an empty choice, because the Silmarils are already gone. Morgoth has already taken them, right? feanor doesn't even have them anymore. But the entire world is now placed into jeopardy because of Fëanor's choice. Unable to let go, unable to give up, Fëanor sets in motion the pathos-filled narrative that is the Silmarillion. It's here in this moment that we witness the beginning of the end for the children of Iluvatar. I turn now to Earendil. Earendil arrives on the scene at the end of the Quintus Silmarillion. And we have truly arrived at an ending. Nargothrond is destroyed through the folly of Turin Turambar. Finrod and Orodreth are dead. Doriath has been overcome by the dwarves. Thingol is slain. Melian has left. Without protection, Doriath easily falls to the sons of Feanor, at which point the second kinslaying occurs. Gondolin is attacked and destroyed by Morgoth, Turgon is slain, and the last remnant of the Noldor takes shelter with Círdan. The choice of Feanor has borne bitter fruit indeed. Of course, by now, Feanor is a distant memory. Yet the narrator of the fall of Gondolin invokes Feanor right at the end of the chapter as a way of reminding us how we got here. Umo has just made a case for mercy with Manwe, who is unmoved. We then read on page 244 of the Silmarillion, The wise have said that the hour was not yet come, and that only one speaking in person for the cause of both elves and men, pleading for pardon on their misdeeds and pity on their woes, might move the councils of the powers, And the oath of Feanor, perhaps even Manwe, could not loose until it found its end. And the sons of Feanor relinquished the Silmarils upon which they had laid their ruthless claim. Now, there is foreshadowing here, of course. But it's interesting that relinquishment is still the issue. It's the possessiveness, now, of the sons of Feanor that continues to wreak havoc in Beleriand. And the wise speculate that it is only through their renunciation of the Silmarils that there will be any hope for the future. Thus, the possessiveness of Feanor and his sons that is brought up here at the end of the narrative is a reminder to us, the readers, that this is the heart of the problem, for which up to this point, there has been no real remedy until Arendo. We're told that Eärundl's longing for the sea was a blending of two purposes, to find his parents, first of all, and to find perhaps the last shore and bring, ere he died, the message of elves and men to the Valar in the west that should move their hearts to pity for the sorrows of Middle-earth. Unlike Fanor, Eärundl's quest is not rooted in a lustful desire for the Silmarils, but in compassion and even love for the children of Iluvatar. Possession of the Silmarils is not, in the end, sustainable for flourishing, which is why an oath is needed to ensure the desperate pursuit of them, which never stops. But love needs no oaths, and Arundel makes none. And love does not take. Love does not possess. Instead, love gives and gives all. On page 245 or 248, sorry, Tolkien in his usual beautiful elevated prose writes And the wise have said that it was by reason of the power of that holy jewel that they came in time to the waters that no vessels save those of the Teleri had known. And they came to the enchanted isles and escaped their enchantment. And they came into the shadowy seas and passed their shadows. And they looked upon Tolerasea, the lonely isle, but tarried not. And at the last, they cast anchor in the bay of Eldamar. And the Teleri saw the coming of that ship out of the east, and they were amazed, gazing from afar upon the light of the Silmaril. And it was very great. But that's all one sentence, by the way. Then Eärendil, first of living men, landed on the immortal shores, and he spoke there to Elwing and to those that were with him. Here, none but myself shall set foot, lest you fall under the wrath of the Valar. But that peril I will take on myself alone for the sake of the two kindreds. In this moment, Arendel is willing to give up everything, including his life, for the sake of the children of Iluvatar. There is no possessiveness here, only a deep self-sacrifice. It's a willingness to risk all and to give all for the sake of the other, a willingness that, in my opinion, we won't see again until that day in the Council of Elrond when Frodo declares, I will take the ring. Eärendil's sacrifice is accepted. It's true that Elwing is permitted to join him, so his is not an utter loss. Yet, as one writer observes, Eärendil is forever banished from his home country, and the light of the Silmrils, only a fragment of the original light of Valinor, is almost lost to Middle-earth. This is Eärendil's true exile. Whereas Feanor is exiled from Valinor, never to return, Eärendil is exiled from Middle-earth. And whereas Feanor demands the Valar to take action against Morgoth, and mocks them when they refuse. Eärendil sacrifices all to plead for mercy to the Valar on behalf of the two kindreds. And here we see perhaps one last parallel or difference. Both Fanor and Eärendil stand before the Valar to seek aid against Morgoth. One stands in pride and defiance, the other in humility. And it's humility that makes the difference. Eärendil's self-sacrifice serves as the remedy for Feanor's possessiveness. And it is the self-sacrifice of Eärendil that moves the Valar to pity and to action on behalf of the two kindreds. Thus, while the choices of Fanor place the world in jeopardy and serve as the beginning of the end for the children of Iluvatar, the choices of Eärendil serve as the eucatastrophe of the Silmarillion and open up new possibilities and new hope out of despair. Arendel then serves as the end of the beginning. He is the bridge between the Silmarillion and the later ages. In a story that was heading into a dead end, Arendel breathes into it new life. So every reference to Arendel in The Lord of the Rings emphasizes the continuity between the legendary past and the present. When Eärendil steps off his ship onto the beach of Valinor, it is the first time a Silmaril is in the Undying Lands since Morgoth stole it so many millennia before. And with the restored Silmaril bound upon his brow, Eärendil leads the charge against the forces of Morgoth and Angolians in the final battle. I suggest that had Feanor made a different choice, he might have been the one leading that battle and that charge. That is, Arundel is Feanor as he could have been, or maybe as he should have been. That is, had Feanor chosen to give up the Silmaril, the bitter pain and suffering we read about in the narrative might all have been avoided. Yeah, and I can hear Tolkien's response to this. It's the same response he gave to the question of why the eagles did not just fly the ring into Mount Doom. Because he wrote in one of his letters, then there would be no story. Thank you. So of course, I'm happy to talk about it. feels it feels a bit like the old book study
2: everything that could possibly be, have been said on this subject has now been said
0: <laughs> so. no no please 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 let that not be the case
3: <laughs> I would like to say hello to sir second tree and lady first tree they're very cute
0: yeah right hi Megan
4: Do you want to say hello? Hello. other way to clap. Okay, show us the other way to clap. Ah. Uh-huh. Yes, very good. side. Or the other side.
3: To clap,
0: if you guys were interested. <laughs> it's, good to know. it's good to know.
2: So my, I, I don't know if it's a question or a point of discussion, but you bring up the uh, passage. The wise have said that it was the light of the Silmaril that allowed them to return to Valinor, mm. and. I'm curious about your thoughts on why the Silmaril was important for that. Because certainly there was nothing prophesied, either in the Doom of Mandos or in any of the words of Ulmo, about the importance of the Silmaril in terms of getting back to Valinor. Ulmo asked Turgon to send plenty of ships, and Turgon did, and none of them made it, possibly because they didn't have the Silmaril, but it was never brought up. and it seems odd that the jewel itself should have that power to me, either the jewel or its history, specifically because it has been involved in so many crimes. <laughs> right. Yeah,
0: yeah. That's a good. That's a good question. Uh, I mean, it may be just the combination of the Silmaril and the quest, right? That Arendelle is coming. Um to beg for mercy, basically, like it seems an, an attitude of humility, I mean, that's not, but that's not stated either, right? So I mean, we're just speculating no.
3: You know what you could argue?
5: Mm-hmm. I'm gonna <laughs> yeah,
3: I was gonna make the most incredibly in character point, and you were all gonna, you were gonna roll your eyes at me because my point was, but you're forgetting about elwing um Ah, so i'm gonna respond to tristan's point by (laughs) tying it to that and it's but what about elwing so if we're talking about the theme of self-sacrifice and the someril um we could talk about the fact that elwing throws herself into the ocean um possibly on a blind faith to the gods throws herself into ulmo's clutches, and Ulmo comes through for her. So you could parallel that to Arendel's stepping onto the land. Um, And she's the one who brings him the someril, so you could argue that that's also very important. Um, Also, the reason I was gonna say we're forgetting about Elwing in the first place was not to respond to that, but to say that um, she a- after the passage you read with Arendil, where he gets to the Undying Lands and he's like, willing to sacrifice himself yeah. and leave his crewmates behind, Elwing is like, no, hold up! You can't right. leave me behind! I'm coming yeah. too! Yeah. And then she does, and she doesn't go to talk to the Valar, but she goes, does go talk to the Teleri and get their forgiveness, and then they lend right. their ships, which are necessary for people coming for relief, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I, you're right. I mean, it is a, it is a, it is a, um, in, in a way, it's a, it's a terrible um, erasure of her in the in the lecture. I had thought about it because of her. Like, I was trying to think in terms of parallels if you could, like, with Elwing and Muriel, right? Like this sort of, uh, I mean, but it, obviously it doesn't work because it's a wife and a mother. But Elwing is so central to it, right? and i think that that you're right and and even that the peril like even the you're right i think elwing in a way provides that redemptive note to the kinslay, right because she befriends the Teleri, the Teleri help her and you know so i think yeah you're right i mean i mean it was in my head briefly and then it it disappeared which is a which is too bad but yeah i think you're right sophia elwing makes a difference and that may be the difference right is you know i mean maybe in a way you know, it's the Valar seeing just how willing these children are to sacrifice themselves for the sake of others that that moves them to pity, right? Um, yeah.
6: Um, I want para like to to help with the parallel. I I wouldn't parallel Elwing to someone else's Inferno's life. Um, but I would parallel her relationship with um, how utterly selfish Fernor is. He's very self-centered and he doesn't work in team, he walks for himself mm-hmm. and he brings his son into the earth. oath. Well, they bring themselves and then he doesn't release them. Um, and but Arendale wouldn't have probably gone arrived in Valinor without Elwing as Sophia pointed out and like his willingness to accept her help and not feeling diminished by it i think also is part of like why they work as a team
0: yeah that's good i think you're right i think actually now if i were if i were to to do something with this i would put elwing in there more because you're right i mean i should so if 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 the key if the decisive factor is this willingness to give right this, this the opposite of possessiveness then elwing you're right like elwing gives the Silmaril to a Arendel. you know what i mean like it's that i mean if you i mean okay we were talking about comparisons i mean when you think about the ring right i mean there's only two characters who are able to give up the ring right and you can make it i mean of course the Silmaril and the ring parallels all over the place right so in a way, you could say that that is as significant, right, as like Elwing giving the Silmaril up when you look, when you compare it with the way the Oath drives the, the Sons of Fanor, that it is at least similar to the, the, the difficulty of giving up the ring that you have with uh, Bilbo and Sam. So yeah, I think, I think Elwing is probably, is more central to it than I let on. Plus she turns into a bird, which is pretty freaking cool. This
4: is not an important point, but that is blatant Tom Bombadil erasure. There were three people able to give up oh. the ring.
0: All right, That's true. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Bombadil. Well, I mean, Bombadil is really interesting, right? Because he is he is sort of the he is like the the physical manifestation of the opposite of possessiveness.
4: Except for Gold. Right? Bill- Okay except, for, okay,
0: except for except for Goldberry. But you wonder if you sometimes you want okay, I mean you're right, and I don't want to oh, right. But there there is a way too where Goldberry does seem to have sort of like this, she's not controlled by him in a weird way, too, right? Like yeah. she seems to be kind of doing her own thing. But you're right, okay, but you're right. I mean, the put in the poetry, he does take her, so <laughs> yeah. But you know like like his like the fact that the ring has no power over him may be rooted in there he has no desire to possess anything. Right? So yeah. And I mean in terms I in terms of the sons like the possessiveness of Fanor comes in with the fact that he you know he basically tells his sons as as he's dying to seek vengeance and keep the oath, right? So in a way he's he possesses his sons too. Right? And they end up being, you know, carrying on that that burden into the rest of the story. Yeah. And there's lots of examples, like Isildur, right? Uh, you know, won't he won't give it up? And you know, look at what happens, Frodo. Uh,
2: Mitch, do you want to go first?
1: Sure, that'd be thank you. Just uh, just mentioned Isildur, and it it twigged in my mind. There's a, a YouTube channel I watch called Men of the West. I think it's Men of the West, uh, mm-hmm. and they have kind of alternate Tolkien, like what what ifs that are really counterfactuals yeah. that are really well done. And the the one that I'm thinking of is if Elrond had just pushed silder into the mountain. Oh yeah, uh, right. What happens? Right. And it it, yeah. it was it was really well done, and I won't spoil it other than to say it's a lot worse. Oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's a okay. lot worse. I mean, who yeah. knows, right? The, right. the idea. That, right actually yeah. that makes sense to me and it was a lot worse i thought it was really cool um
4: yeah.
1: anyway uh i missed about part uh, like half of it this is the way it goes i'm sorry to say but mm-hmm. i did have some things i wanted to just quickly say if that's okay mm-hmm. uh talking about um uh possessiveness uh i was wondering what do you think if like manway makes it pretty clear that Feynor has to give up the somewhere else in order to make this thing work do you think it, it seems like, to me, that if they couldn't have forced him to. If they forced him to, it probably wouldn't have worked. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, he says that, right? He says, he says he'll says he only give it up by force, if he's forced. Yeah, and, he yeah. says, and that would make the Valar the same as Morgoth, in
1: essence, right? Right, so you don't think they could have done it. Like, they couldn't have replenished the trees, probably. I feel like they couldn't
0: have. Yeah, I think it all depended on Fain being willing to give it up.
1: Yeah, which then...
0: Which is the theme that runs through everything, right? Like... Like even Bilbo, you know, he had to willingly give it up. He couldn't be. It couldn't. You couldn't take it, right? So there's something about being forced to give it up
1: that yeah. has
0: more damage, right?
1: Yeah. And you might have mentioned this because I missed part of the lecture. Sorry to say, but um, I the the comparison I was thinking of with Feanor was that he's he makes the Silmarils, but then he he hoards them and, and loses them. Whereas in the end, A. Randall, um shares them via like the starlight. We all can see it right
4: uh,
1: and yep. uh also yeah, the, you, you mentioned the, just the last point here the 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 two birth stories i thought that was cool i never thought about that before uh and they're the way that they're described um you mentioned the consuming the consuming love that feanor has mm-hmm. or his mother has for him where he kind of consumes her strength so it's kind of zero sum but then it says arendelle i think it was the love of heavens reflected so it's kind of reflected off of him so that we can all share in it it's not a consuming love it's a shared nice.
0: love diminished yeah right a reflected oh. yeah that's good yeah i like that and i should point out that like even like i only i only um focus on the birth narratives like later fanor is given like he's described is he the one who's the most beautiful of fan fanor there's something about fanor that he's like the most beautiful or right yeah, so later yeah. on you get these virtues that sort of but in their birth stories, he has none of that, or doesn't. he doesn't seem to, right? Um, uh, and then what else, there was something else you mentioned that was interesting, uh, but I don't remember now what it was. Um, something I was interested in, in tugging at a little bit too, just thinking a little bit more about Elwing, um, like I wonder how much we could do with Elwing and, Nerd and L. Um because she was, if I remember correctly, she was supposed to be a really good influence on Baymar. Um But like their sundering, obviously has some negative
1: psychological consequences, and he gets more and more uh, kind of possessive um, after that. Like I wonder how much we could play with that, and how their their relationship is really important.
0: I didn't think of that. Like I did, yeah, because of course that is another another parallel is that they're both married. Right? So you're right. That is that would be another example of how they seem to have these parallel lives. But it goes completely wrong for Fanor and everything goes right for Arendo. Uh and yeah, I mean, you know, their their spouses would have something to do with that. We would presume, or we'd have to look and see. Yeah.
3: In one of the extended sources, like, somewhere in History of Middle-Earth, I looked it up at one point and completely forgot where it is, but you get, like, two more sentences of characterization about Nerdanel, and it tells you that Nerdanel is... (laughs) What?
2: No, I'm just trying to think where it would be. (laughs) Oh,
3: okay. And it tells you that Nerdanel is a sculptor, so she's a craftsperson just like Feanor, Um, and she creates these sculptures that are, like, out of stone, but they're really, really lifelike um, to an... You know to a very impressive extent but unlike feanor who makes these things and then locks them in a vault she decorates the whole city with her sculptures
0: ah wow that is so cool yes and and like in in the Silmarillion, it specifically says that that feanor wants to master things whereas she does not she wants to understand them Right. So that's a difference as well. Yeah. But I mean, in a way, Fanor like this. So one of the things, of course, that has to come one question that has to come into this, right, is the Ein right, like Tolkien's sort of understanding of fate and free will, because in a way, you can make the case that Fanor has everything stacked against him, right? Like, no matter how great his wife might be, no matter how one you know, like it's never gonna work for him, right? Whereas you know, Arendo, because he's the favored sort of son, everything goes his way. You know what I mean? Like so, I think you could make a case that, you know, in the in the in the question of theodicy, like the justice of God, you know, there isn't a, there is a sense where Fanor is the is the you know, he 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 has an injustice done to him, and that everything in the world is against him, right? And it's not it's not fair. Like he doesn't have a in, a, in a, he doesn't have a chance, right? Which is a problem. So I think there's that would be another direction that you could take this and try to say, come on, like, as you know we all feel for Feanor, right? Like, come on, right? So, yeah. Now I didn't mention, but it does say later that like in the in the final battle, you know, I talked about how. A Arendo is fan, or as he maybe should have been, but in the final battle, I can't remember like Sophia. I can't remember where this came up, but Fanor does come back, right? He comes back, and he does in fact use the Silmarils against Morgoth, or again, like he's part of that final. And I think even his sons, Fanor and his sons, are all kind of so he does have this return, kind of like, um, and I don't remember where where I found that, but someone could probably find it. But yeah, so you know, like. You know, so Air Rendell isn't doesn't replace Fanor. Fanor actually comes back and he gets redeemed and he gets to do what he should have done, sort of thing. But, but still, you know, you can't help but kind of feel like when you compare them, like yeah, Air gets everything and Fanor gets nothing, and now we're like now we got to blame Fanor for being the, such an a hole, right? But it's like, what else is he gonna like? You know, okay.
5: As a Fanor lover, I can endorse uh, supporting Fanor. <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah, I remember that. That's right. Yeah. I'm with you,
4: Alex. Like, yeah. Yeah, you know. He doesn't have he a
5: chance. Dirty, so he did dirty. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. I think Eloise has had a point for a little bit.
6: I I had several things that passed through my mind when everyone was talking. Um, um well, when we were talking about uh, uh, Netanel and Elwing, like I checked back in the text, and in the text it says that uh, for a while, uh, Netanel was able to restrain Fiona's spirit. Right. Yeah, right. And it's it's interesting because that's not very healthy for good marriage. <laughs> um, right. You don't want to be a prison for your partner. You want to be a partner, you want to be a support like Elwing is to right. to Erendil. Um, but yeah, like, since I'm going to, to do that, I'm going to, like, do my point on Sphiano. I think he, like, was cheated of therapy, uh, but, uh, he still uh, made terrible choices afterwards. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and, and so that, that kind of ties into, like, the, the thing you told about fate and, like, if you have the song how much choice do we have in this narrative and I think that I don't think the song is that detailed that Fianor didn't have any choice yes he had like he he had a harder beginning life than any other one at the time because like he was the first son of like the, the son of the first divorce and everything, like, not cool. And that's why I think he, yes, was very much cheated of therapy. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but at the same time, um, like, after he wreaks havoc, after his choice leads to havoc everywhere, he's not the only one who has terrible beginning of life and who even, and like, some become it and that's super cool uh, <laughs> some have more middle lives uh where like they do both good and bad and some like so like i think it's it would be too easy to say like he's just so evil and like he does everything wrong but also it would be too easy to say he he had never a chance to begin with because i think i don't think Illuvatar would have made the song so tightly woven around people that they really can't go against it like Mm -hmm. I think the song like and like the way I understand the song is more like a theme the theme that it's gonna go well in the end like that Morgoth can't prevail so like in that sense Morgoth didn't never had a chance but like um but like it's not that precise that Feanor had to be one of the like conduit of chaos in the world, uh, or like Erin had to be the savior of everyone. Like, I think it's more like loose than that. And I made a lot of points, sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, I mean, that's nice. That's right. I mean, that's how you, well, um, uh, I'm trying to remember, We of course we've talked about the Aina a million times over the years. So I'm trying to, anyway. Yeah. So you're right. I mean, I think it is. It is not, like, it's it's not a. It doesn't determine down to the last detail, right? It it is more kind of thematic, and there is a kind of freedom within it, but not beyond it. Something like that, maybe.
4: It's like um, the the individual instruments don't have prescriptive lines.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Sorry. But you sorry. wonder. You wonder, like, you go to, like, Mitch's, the the men of the West, and the what if. Like, what if Fanor had, say, said, well, I'll give you one. You know, I'll keep two. I'll give you one. So he, right? Because, of course, they were already gone, right? So then you would have had Fanor go back to his home and say, okay, I'm going to get the Silmaril and give it to and then they're gone. And now, in a way, you might have the situation where you have the hunt for the Silmarils, but now the Valar is behind it or something, Do you know what I mean? Be, so yeah, that'd be an interesting. It probably also would have turned out badly, but because it's Tolkien, so it has not turned out.
6: Probably would have turned bad for the humans because yeah. they would have woken up somewhere and suddenly everything cracks down everywhere and they'd be like, <laughs> yeah. what is happening?
0: Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the first time they meet someone, they're like, yeah, we're looking for this bright glowing jewel. Have you seen it? <laughs> like, what? <laughs>
2: That actually brings up an interesting point. Um, it's mentioned that Arendel has to go back to Valinor on behalf of both men and elves, uh, because he is of the two kindreds and you know, beg forgiveness. But it seems a little strange, because the men haven't sinned against the Valar. Unless he did. Do you go into like <laughs> other sources? Like yes and no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like even in the alphabet, there doesn't seem to be any valor contact other than Okay, Ror that's God. fair.
3: It's like directly a Yeah. Right.
2: So I don't know. It, it's it seems odd to me in some ways that the the Eowyn would have to sue for clemency on behalf of men, because even if there have been evil actions by men, it hasn't been against the Valar in any way.
5: I mean, I have... Okay, so my Tolkien knowledge has dissipated greatly in the years uh, since uh, <laughs> being active in the club, but I have a response to that, which was... My understanding was always that the Valar never really had the same kind of connection with men that they had with the Elves. Like, the Valar always seemed kind of like the Elves' gods, and man's god was eluvatar himself, kind of directly. And, like, the Valar maybe would have a few connections with the men over their lives. So, to me, like, the Arendil suing for, or, like, coming and asking the Valar for help for men and Elves to me, it was it was really just the elves, and the men was like an afterthought for the Valar. They were like, well, yeah, okay, so we'll help our like friends, our like favorite children of Guitar, you know, who we helped raise and all that good stuff. Oh, and those guys that woke up over there, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it'll be good for them when Morgoth is gone too.
0: I mean, it's a question of like, I mean, in a in a way, it's the old question of like, is is ignorance of doing something wrong does that justify you getting away with doing something wrong, right? So like, you're like, okay, you're right, that maybe the men didn't know or didn't have direct contact with the Valar, but like they're sacrificing each other on altars, right? And you're like, well, that's a problem, right? Like that's that's kind of offensive, even if you don't know, in a way, you know, and so maybe there's a kind of, you know, a sort of sense where they're caught up in whatever Morgoth has done and therefore they also need some kind of mercy, maybe, maybe again, it goes back to even the Valars. One of the reasons they hesitated, right, was because they didn't want to destroy the humans by stomping around the earth, right? And and so, in that sense, by by leaving them alone, the humans got caught up in the oath, got caught up in everything, and so you know, Randall was saying, well. I mean the mercy might not be maybe or maybe i'm kind of thinking as i talk maybe the issue is not we need mercy because we have committed a crime it's more like we need mercy because we are suffering you know what i mean maybe it's not so much like it's not maybe about guilt right it might be more about pain you know and saying hey can you please and in that sense both of them both kindreds are caught up in that and both require mercy not in the sense of a kind of you know reformed you know theological kind of justification by grace but just a we need someone to stop the pain and the suffering right please for the love of everything that is good you know and that's maybe where he comes in you know to try to i mean it's interesting that we don't like i mean okay like i mean this is the this Maybe it's in somewhere else in the history of Middle Earth, but you know we don't actually get his speech, like Arondel's speech. Like, what what did he actually say, right? And wouldn't that be a great, you know? I mean, the, the, I mean, there's a parallel between that. Like, I, I always I always sort of think of like what what you know Luthien coming before Mandos, right? Like, I feel it would be a similar kind of speech. Right, where even Mandels, doesn't Mandos even Mandels weeps. Doesn't Mandels weep with when Luthian comes, right? So that's not about so much about guilt as much as it is about pain and suffering, right? And maybe that's what ties them together.
3: I think there's also a very weird argument to be made that the Valar uh are worried about you know sinking the continent as they end up doing and so i think there's a weird argument about consent to be made you cannot do it only on behalf of elves because humans are living on that continent too you need to have like a representative of elves and humans be like hey it's it's okay to stamp our continent into the ocean we do actually need that much help also does ariel have a point i noticed that
4: i don't know is my speaker working
0: yeah Yeah.
4: oh okay i can't click anything so um yeah i I was hoping that my hand would go up but
3: um you guys said everything that i was going to say though so (laughs) my only observation is that the elves are catholic
4: because they need the valor to intercede with them on behalf of, uh, Iluvatar. Yeah, right. Lucas just yelled from the other room, why are you calling me out like this, Ariel? <laughs> <laughs> You're an elf, that's great! <laughs> I'm not calling you out, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I will
3: hear nothing else. <laughs> Cool, can I make a wildly unrelated point?
2: I believe in your ability to do so, yes.
3: Um, okay, so something else I was thinking during Rick, your presentation was when you were talking about all of this um possessiveness and like the Silmarill and giving it up and all of that. Um Okay, I would like to make the semi-serious and semi-ridiculous argument that the artistic possessiveness of the Silmarillion is redeemed through the character of Gimli. Um, Because, okay, this is complicated. So, back in the Silmarillion, it says that Galadriel's hair is lit with a light, like the light of the two trees. And the light of the two trees is what's used to make the Silmaril. I feel like I should have, like, one of those, like, string boards behind me as I say this. And so, so the the hair of Galadriel is specifically compared to the thing that is used to make the Silmarils, and the Silmarils are described as a crystal-like substance. um, (laughs) (laughs) As a crystal-like substance um, housing an inner light. And also, Feanor wants Galadriel's hair in the extended canon, because he wants to make something with it, and Galadriel is like, absolutely not. Um, Enter Gimli, who is also a craftsperson, presumably, because all dwarves or something. Um, And he does not ask for Galadriel's hair. He is given it as a boon because he's just like the nicest person ever and he's not possessive about it And so he gets three strands of her hair and says that he is going to Make it like a house in Crystal so that it will be preserved forever So you have the light of the two trees being put in a crystal basically my point is Gimli makes a lesser Silmaril Um, Mm -hmm. but it's fine that time because It is actually the reunification of elves and dwarves after a Silmaril caused the slaying of elves and dwarves in Doriath, because Mm -hmm. Galadriel is a representative of Melian, and Gimli is a representative of Incernaric.
0: So so that's great. And so this this is always my question in response to those really amazing thoughts, right? It's like, so. Do you think Tolkien intended that or was Tolkien just like, well, the Silmarillion is never going to see the light of day. Something going to rip <laughs> off stuff for me, but no one's going to notice. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, there were three strands, right? For three Silmarils, right? Oh, that's so,
5: true. There you go.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, I think you I think I mean, I think you're right, you know. So, which is great. Like it's, that's it's really so cool.
1: good. That's so good. And Galadriel would know. She'd know she'd get all the symbolism. She'd understand. Gimli yep. does no clue. Right. Does the right thing, I guess. But yeah. that's, doesn't Gimli go into the West eventually anyway? Brings like the Silmarils, the, these yeah. little Silmarils. Gimli with becomes
3: him. the first dwarf to go to Amon and he goes with Legolas. Yeah. That's why they make yeah. it. It's because they have yeah. a Silmaril. <laughs> yeah,
0: they have the light, the light of the hair, yeah. This guy is yeah. guiding yeah.
3: them. Sure. <laughs> nice. I'm just gonna say that this is really. Yeah, you, you should say. Mhm. Oh, I was just you gonna
6: say. this you share the little Cummings you made. Explaining uh how everyone gets to um, a man and Galadriel decide to have like a, a family party uh back with everyone and Gimli. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I just don't know if it'd be a happy party or a yeah. sad party. Both. you It's hard to know when Frodo goes into the Undying Lands if he ever actually, you know, is happy again or you know what I mean? Like <laughs>
5: Okay, I have a funny, unrelated story about that, but in the years since we were in the Tolkien Club, I have finally convinced Kelsey to watch all of the Lord of the Rings movies, not the books, that's too much, but the movies, and so now she finally knows what happens at the end of Return of the King, and she was so mad! She didn't know that Frodo went to the Undying Lands, died! She was so <laughs> mad. She was like, Frodo dies? No one told me I was in the Tony Club for four years and no one told me that Frodo dies at
4: the end. <laughs> <laughs> Just spoilers.
0: <That's> so <laughs> how do we how do we not mention that? That's amazing, right?
4: To be fair, every time Return of the King came up, she got really upset about spoilers. So we were all very careful.
0: Oh, that's maybe that's yeah, right. That is so funny. I mean part of the timing of this of this this lecture was like I was I was kind of following the, the emails going okay I'm pretty sure they they're past a Arendo, so I think I can you know I can talk about this stuff. Yeah. So
3: Yeah, you're good. We were talking about the Acalabeth on Monday.
0: Oh yeah. Oh man, I missed I missed the book studies, honestly. That's like here, nobody really knows about the,
4: the missing of the book studies never leaves you. It's an ache that, it's a grief that's graven in your face and never fades.
0: Yes. I'm actually, yeah. we have a, we're starting, we're
4: starting no, a book club nice.
0: Yeah, we're starting a book club here and I'm I'm reading chapter one of The Hobbit tonight with a bunch of Koreans whose English is sort of elevated. So I'm thinking maybe this will start something. So that'll be fun.
1: We're we're obsessed with the first chapter audiobook of The Hobbit in this house. Who reads it? Laurelyn. Well who reads it? I don't know. Uh, well, oh. Laura, Laura, Laura.
5: No, I don't know. It's on
1: Spotify. It's version.
4: It's pretty
5: good.
1: Uh, it's pretty good. The Hobbit. Yeah, she's yeah. singing. And she yeah. likes the dwarves. It's amazing. Yeah.
4: When you get to Riddles in the Dark, if you're audiobooking it, you should skip whatever audiobook you're reading and listen to the version of Tolkien reading Riddles in the Dark from that special feature uh, set of CDs that came out one year.
0: Yeah, and when he does the Golem, right?
4: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> it's like home, home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Also, I did just argue that L-Wing is, sorry, that Legolas is the L-Wing to A.R. Rendell's Gimli. And I'm going to stand by that because this is one of about 60 different points that I have noted in which the relationship arc of two men explicitly parallels that of a romantic relationship established between a man and a woman yeah about 60. i've just been collecting a lot of these there's a lot with finrod and bayor too
4: mm, right are we are we going to get a term in presentation on these
1: references yeah. because
6: i already gave i mean we fin already got back like,
1: yeah but you can yeah, you can expand can this it could be a series
3: that's true <laughs>
6: It's like you you will have your, like, Tale of series and you will have your, like, so <laughs> Bad the Gaze <laughs> series.
0: On another unrelated note, I got an email from Elijah. Some of you might remember Elijah. He was part of the club, well, towards the beginning. Anyway, <laughs> he sends me an email and he asks me, he says, yeah. Um, is there a way that I can make a donation to The Last Alliance? Because I seem to remember that in one of the book studies, there was a prize for one of the things. And I remember getting the prize and then breaking it. And I feel like I should try to reimburse the club for that. (laughs) And I was like, well, first of all, I'm not in Edmonton anymore. And secondly, those prizes were not, you know, we didn't spend a whole lot of money to make those things, except for the Silmaril. Who made the Silmaril? Was that... Was that Megan? Alex? It was Megan who made the big so yeah but anyway yeah so I told him I don't think he has to he has to worry about it but yeah he has been apparently been carrying that guilt around for quite a few years. <laughs> He's <laughs> of not breaking here today
3: but uh, we also lost the um the one ring like the one ring necklace that the club had was lost because Ryan was mugged in France <laughs> and someone oh grabbed God. it off his neck. <laughs> I'm sure they were really disappointed to discover it's worth ten dollars or something like that. Yeah. But
4: <laughs>
3: I mean, I mean maybe they to just the the French French fans.
6: It they exist. We exist. Maybe <laughs> call
0: us around
3: right. him, you know.
0: Besides, I think any 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 Lord of the Rings themed board game is gonna have a little metal ring in it, probably. So you can probably recover it. Yeah, I think yeah. I remember hearing that story. You know, scary, but, yeah. Well, all right. I mean, uh, I'm uh, happy to hang around a bit, of course, but I also wanna, you know, not make it feel like people have to stay if they're ready to go. So whatever people wanna do, if there's like no more specific discussion around the the le- the lecture. Then uh I noticed that uh the next one, um oh, now, now I can't think of her name. You know, I see the title, I'm like, okay. oh my gosh. Like of course she's she's speaking out of her own academic background. So that makes
3: Natalie. Sense. Natalie B. Oh
0: yeah Natalie. Yeah. I'm like, oh wow, that sounds pretty good
2: too. So I mean you don't have to you don't have to put the air quotes around lecture. It was it was a lecture. Oh, okay. Thank
4: you. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's a man who's given a sermon before. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, right. That's a Yeah.
4: <laughs> but we could seriously listen to you talk, like, for hours. If you just, like, wanted to, like, read aloud from the Silmarillion, I'd stick around for, like, the rest of it.
0: Oh, I know. You know what, I mean, I remember, I remember, was was it still, a, or was it, was it, we were in Edmonton, we were sitting around, it was at a book club, and I remember saying, not to, not to be a downer, but I remember saying that, you know, we're going to lose Christopher Tolkien any day. And when that happens, we got to gather with some wine and we got to read or we got to listen to him read Baron and Luthien, right? And then, of course, you know, by the time that happened, we had sort of scattered so we couldn't do it. But I still think it'd be great just to sit around and listen to Christopher Tolkien read bits of the, Tol- bits of the Silmarillion.
4: That could be one of our events at the reunion when it finally happens. We'll have just yeah, a whole weekend with a full agenda every day. That's right. To yeah.
0: We'll close every evening with Christopher Tolkien reading something, yeah. Or Isn't Tolkien reading
4: something.